Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. Welcome to On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. I'm Colin Ellis. And I'm Nam Kiwanuka. Uh, so word on the street, Colin, is that somebody's celebrating a big 4-0 birthday. Are you sure it's uh, word on the street and not word on the script? <laughs> <laughs> Happy birthday. Thank you very much. How does it feel to be 40? Um, I don't know yet. I don't know yet. When we're, we're recording this actually a few days before my birthday. When, when actually, when this episode drops, I will be 40, which is crazy to me because I just always thought 40 was something. Old. Yeah, well, not old necessarily, but just something I not I, <laughs> not something I'd ever thought I'd actually get to. But here we are. Well, honestly, I always thought 40 was old, but now that I'm in my 40s, 40-ish. What are you talking um, about? You're 29. <laughs> I'm always 29. But honestly, I think you just feels like the best is yet to come. So happy birthday. Thank you very much. Well, I'm an October baby, as we've already discussed, and uh, the weather's starting to get a little colder. Leaves are starting to change. But this last summer we had, I mean, with the smog in this city, in Toronto, it was just crazy. What did you think of it, Nan? Yeah, I, I kind of feel like I shouldn't complain because winter's just around the corner. But August was so hot that there were days that were just unbearable. In one week, I think we had consecutive days where it was 30 degrees plus, but it felt like 40 something, uh, which is shocking. With people working from home, I kept thinking of people who didn't have access to air conditioning. My son has asthma and it gets really bad on hot days. So that week we spent most of it indoors. Um, And by the way, do you remember during the summer when the sun looked like it was kind of pinkish or red? I remember seeing it and just like thinking how beautiful it looked. So I tweeted a photo out and then somebody told me it was actually climate related because of the forest fires up north. Oh, I remember it very well because I had a really nice view of it from my balcony and you know, took some nice photos of it, but of course, not necessarily. When you find out that it's like a bad thing, right? yeah, it just yeah, it, it, it makes you think. Oh shoot, we're all doomed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, it spe- does. Well, speaking of climate, on today's episode, we're going to be chatting with filmmaker Eva Orner about her new documentary, Burning, which explores Australia's Black Summer. You know, when you watch a movie and there's that sort of like low drone noise, it just increases in volume. And you just know that something's coming and it's going wrong. It was like that. It was a very slow burn. This is the one that bushfire fighters have had nightmares about for years. Five million square kilometers. That's the size of Europe. Climate scientists are saying the bushfires in Australia are a warning of what may be to come around the world. We're getting weather now that no human being has ever seen. We knew that we would start feeling the impacts before anyone else. (laughs) But the greatest tragedy of this black summer was that we saw it coming. In 2019 and 2020, Australia experienced a series of bushfires that were dubbed the Black Summer. 18 million hectares of forest burned, 3 billion animals died, 
Almost 6,000 buildings were destroyed, and 34 people were killed. Approximately 20% of Australia's forests are now gone, which is just devastating. Cohen, those numbers are just shocking. And it just kind of feels uh, even worse because the pandemic made this monumental moment feel like a footnote. You know, the number of animals that died in those fires is so hard to wrap your head around. Um, You know, I'm not a scientist, (laughs) but I can only imagine that the impact of the fires on the ecology of those environments will be felt for decades to come. And we faced our own challenges with wildfires in our own country this past summer. According to Natural Resources Canada, we see two and a half million hectares of forest burned every year due to wildfires. But it feels like our fire problems are just going to get worse. I think uh, no matter where we are in the world, we will all experience the impacts of the climate crisis. When you look at the footage in this dock of flames that are several hundred feet high, and the people who are at the front lines fighting for something to be done, it's so frustrating to see how powerful politics is. I always think that when the day comes, whether you're on the left or the right won't matter, we will all suffer the consequences. Exactly. And that brings us to our discussion with Eva Orner. Eva was visiting family during the black summer in Australia, and she knew that something was different, so she got her camera and started filming. We talk about climate scientists who have been sounding the alarm for years, the inaction of politicians, and what we can expect from wildfires as the climate crisis worsens. But we'll also talk about hope. Here's my conversation with Eva Orner. Well, Eva Orner, thank you so much for joining us on Ondocs today. Thanks for having me. Um, your documentary, Burning, looks primarily at the, at the black summer of 2019 and 2020 in Australia. Can you just remind our listeners of what happened that summer? Yeah, I mean, it actually, it's the worst, the worst fires in Australia's history. Um, and Australia has a pretty tough history on fires. It's not like we haven't had fires before. You know, we are a very fire-prone country. Um, but what's really interesting about the black summer, as we call it, of 2019-2020, is it actually started at the end of winter. And I think that's when I first knew something was wrong because it started in August, which for us is the end of winter. Normally it starts in, you know, October, November or December. And I think that was the first time I kind of thought, when I, I, I live in LA and I'm from Australia, obviously, and I remember seeing it on kind of, you know, on the news thinking, I, I think I said to my boyfriend, like, wow, I can't believe it's burning. It's August. Like, what's going to happen mm. by the time we get to November? Um, and then we saw what happened through, I guess, from like, you know, sort of September, October, right through to, you know, February, a very large part of Australia was burning. Hmm. And you were in Sydney at the time? Well, I I went home, you know, for Christmas holidays in December, January for a month. Um, so we arrived there when it was really at its worst. And the absolute worst period, I think, really was over like New Year's Eve, Christmas, New Year's Eve. And it just, it's really interesting because statistically they say one in four Australians were affected by the fires of Black Summer. And I we lived it. It was like, you know, our... ABC Radio, which is, I guess, like PBS in America, you know, our public broadcaster, we were driving a lot, we were traveling a lot, we were visiting a lot of people. And it was like this sort of emergency radio station. It was just 24-7 fire coverage and evacuations and loss of life. And and, and just, you know, everyone I, know, I knew was affected, whether it was their kids supposed to be at, you know, a rave in the country for New Year's Eve or friends losing homes. And then when we were in Sydney, um, we witnessed the smoke in Sydney, which was really shocking. You know, it was like a thick fog and, 
you know, your eyes were watering and you're coughing. And it's so weird because it was pre-COVID and I remember thinking I can't believe the government aren't giving kids masks because mm. they're going to have respiratory issues. Like it was really crazy. And and I think, you know, this is when I decided to make the film because I just saw so many things that weren't right. Um, and I lived for 34 years in Melbourne where I'm from and there was a day on December 27 in 2019 and it was 47 degrees Celsius. And in my Gosh. first 34 years there, it never got over 44 in like February for a couple of days. This is, I, mean, I ain't no scientist and there has not been a three degree global temperature increase. However, in my hometown, the temperatures have gone up three degrees and no one was flipping out. Everyone was like, yeah, it's really hot. And I'm like, it's like Baghdad weather. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and so by the time I flew home, I was on the plane, my eyes were weeping from the smoke and I sort of thought, I think I need to make a film about this. Yeah. Actually, well, I learned from your film just the effect that the smoke can have on a pregnant woman and uh, her baby. That was that was intense I, or just uh, insane to think about uh, just how it affects even like the smallest thing like uh, the placenta, for example. That's a super interesting thing that I came across when I was researching the film. And, yeah, it's about women who were exposed to smoke for like, three, you know, three months during a phase of their pregnancy. And there was kind of – it's all anecdotal at this point – um, but I spoke to a lot of women. We have a doctor there and everyone was observing. And also the, the neonatal wards were like packed, all these premature babies. And the, so mothers were having babies early. They were very small and, um, and the babies had issues and the mother's placentas were black. And every doctor was saying to them, are you a smoker? They had placentas, healthy women who had never had any issues, often who had previous babies, had the placenta of a woman who had smoked a pack a day for like 30 years and that was from wow. the smoke. And there's been one study out of Denver um, that shows this like conclusively. But, you know, this is uh, this is stuff happening in real time. It's like COVID research. You know, we don't have the data on this because we're just starting to live with these much longer, more devastating fires. But it's affecting, you know, I think the doc one of the doctors in the film says, you know, it's, it's the canary in the coal mine. You know, these kids are, these kids are, are, are being born into being victims of climate change. Yeah. Well, you mentioned earlier that, you know, the bushfires have been a, a problem in Australia, I guess, throughout its history and ever since, Austra like, settlers arrived. So, I guess, you know, how would, I guess, Australians typically deal with, like, bushfires? And I, when I grew up, there was a big bushfire in Victoria, my, my home state called Ash Wednesday, and, you know, it went for, you know, weeks and it was a big portion of the state. But and, and most of our firefighters are voluntary, and I'm, pro I'm sure it's the same in Canada, actually. It's very different from America, where most people are voluntary. So, you know, every small town has a CFA, a country fire association, and everyone volunteers. And, you know, people just, you see it in the early footage in the film, you know, people just fought the fires. But this fire got 21% of our forests. Um, mm. And one of the climate scientists, Tim Flannery, who's really world-renowned, he's in the film, he says, if you'd told me it was going to be 21% before this happened, I would never have believed you. It was just so vast. So I think traditionally, you know, they've been much, much smaller. Um, getting more and more devastating is Greg Mullins, who's the fire commissioner in the film and a career firefighter, says they've been getting progressively bigger over the last 20, 30 years as we've known about climate change. But now we're at a point where we sort of cross this We've crossed the precipice where we're going to have these devastating fires. And we're seeing them, you know, my bad luck, you know, I moved from <laughs> L.A. to California. <laughs> and we're seeing, you know, I mean, the, the West Coast of America is being 
devastated and we talk about that at the end of the film but also you know Ontario is like having its own issues with fires and and people keep saying to me gosh where do we move you know with climate change and I always sort of say you know Tasmania or Canada but both Tasmania (laughs) and Canada are burning as well yeah yeah no it's it's becoming just a global problem you can't really escape it right yeah. Um, you mentioned you mentioned Tim Flannery before. We should talk about him because he he's actually a paleontologist and has been kind of sounding the alarm about climate change. And what was his, I guess, role? I guess he was in the Australian government, I think. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, he was the climate commissioner when we very briefly had. A, it's a confusing in Australia because our. Um, you know, more left government is called Labor and our conservative government is called Liberal. (laughs) Um, And there was a very brief time when we had a Labor government in recent years and they immediately appointed a climate commission, you know, like a climate czar in America would would be. And his role was sort of to alert people about climate science. And he wrote a book decades ago called um, The The Weather Makers. So he's been on, he's been, he's a very world-renowned climate scientist. His background is paleontology, but he's been a full-time climate scientist for decades now um and he's a real go-to in australia because he's been battling this for decades and he's had a lot of like pushback from conservative governments and so he was appointed as his climate commissioner for our slightly left-leaning government and then the minute the new government came in which was conservative on the first day they just disbanded the commission and it was very much like Mm. what donald trump did um when he got in yeah, let's talk about this conservative government. This is the uh, government of uh, Australia's current prime minister, Scott Morrison. And a lot of the film, I guess, talks about his role in this um, in, during the Black Summer. What, is his, what are his views on climate change exactly? I mean, you know, he's a, he's a tricky kind of guy. He's got a marketing background and he's a little bit slippery and he's very good at avoiding things. And a great example is somebody asks him in the film, um, will, you, you know, will you commit to... Um, net zero by 2050 and he says of course we'll commit to net zero after 2050 I mean that's what he does and journalists don't call him up on it look he's a very he's a conservative he's a very very conservative person Um, you know he's in line with I guess Murdoch in terms of politics which is our biggest news source in Australia Um, he's a very religious man which is unusual for Australia I think we're not we're not like America he's a uh, evangelical. He's a member of the Hillsong Church. He's a Pentecostal Christian. Um, <laughs> and, you know, he's very in with, he's very pro-coal. He's very pro-fossil fuels. Um, you know, in my opinion, he's very out of line with where the world is heading. It's been proven by science. Um, and I think he's going to be responsible for really devastating Australia's economy if we don't pivot because we need to be doing, you know, we need to be focusing on renewables not coal and gas and that's where he is he is you know 50 years out of step i think with where we need to be the coal and uh gas industry in australia i learned from your doc it's it's the large you're the australia is the largest exporter of oil and gas or sorry uh, coal and gas so i mean is he i guess um are they funding his like political campaign like why do they seem to have so much sway over his government yeah, and it, again, it's very similar to sort of, you know, what we've seen in recent American governments with lobbyists going in and out of government. You know, they go back and forward. So, you know, there's a thing called the Minerals Council in Australia, which is the largest, you know, uh, fossil fuel lobby group, and they're very in with the government. And it's that simple thing about it's always about the economy. And at the end of the day, we haven't prepared over the last couple of decades for renewables. And, you know, Mike Cannon-Brooks, who's our kind of Elon Musk, is a young tech billionaire. Um, and he's all about renewables and he just says, you know, it just doesn't make any sense because there's going to be a point where 
our massive exports of coal and fossil fuels, no one's going to want to buy them anymore. I mean, we mainly they mainly go to China and India. <laughs> and at some point, China and India are going to have to flip. And if we're not prepared, we're going to lose everything. So, you know, the Australian economy is really pegged on that and it doesn't make any sense. And also we could be one of the biggest renewable energy exporters in the world, which is what he's trying to do. Um, and we're just, you know, we're going backwards. And what's really interesting is that the states in Australia have all committed to net zero, but the federal government won't. And there's an enormous amount of pressure on them. But, you know, look, I'm very, very critical of Scott Morrison and I'm not a fan of his. I've made a previous film that really was very aggressive to him as well about the, Australia's really harsh refugee policy as well. And he was sort of one of the pioneers of that. But we will give credit where credit is due. And when COVID hit Australia, we say this in the film, we say you've got to give it to Scott Morrison. When COVID hit, I mean, right now Australia's in like the worst lockdown, even worse than Ontario, because they didn't get vaccinated and Delta hit. But they isolated the country. They listened to the scientists last March and they declared COVID a pandemic before the World Health Organization. So what's really interesting in the film is Tim Flannery, our, our climate scientist, says, you know, you've got to give it to Scott Morrison. He listened to the science. Why yeah. won't he listen to the science of climate change? And it's because of the economy and fossil fuels and that into that that relationship. But, you know, it, it is interesting. And and everyone thought, wow, he's listening to the science with COVID. Maybe he'll, maybe he'll, maybe now it's the moment to embrace climate change after the fires. And instead he came out you know, a couple, very shortly after COVID and the fires and said our new economic recovery plan is is gas, which just yeah. is devastating again to our climate change situation. Do you think he's also worried about incurring the wrath of the media, um, specifically the R Rupert Murdoch media empire? Well, yeah, but what's really crazy, I mean, the film coming out now is so interesting and it comes out before the end of the year on Amazon globally. And what's really interesting is that the Murdoch Press in Australia have just announced, well, it's come out, that they're going to soften their stance on climate denial. <laughs> um, and that's determined not because of any great belief but determined because of advertising dollar and the way of the world. And they're not going to apologise for all the damage they've done, which is massive over decades, but apparently they're softening it. And so there's been all these articles in America saying, is this going to go through to Fox as well, which it will not, of course. And also, you know, our really strong climate deniers who are in our film who are on Sky News, which is Murdoch in Australia, I mean, they're not going to turn their tune. They're like vehemently climate change deniers and they're not going to change their tune. But... Um, you know, Murdoch's very, very powerful in Australia and very in cahoots with the government and very few prime ministers have stood up to him or are able to. And so, you know, it's just really dragging us down and holding us back. But I, I thought the fires would have more impact and some of the people in the film thought so too. But, you know, very shortly after COVID hit and, you know, the focus was taken off climate change and the fires. So I think Australia's in a really, it's, it's in a very tenuous situation. It's something I, th I wondered about with the fires is because it's happening, I guess, in the rural parts of Australia and, you know, the, the, the economic and political classes are all in this, this, the urban centers. Perhaps that's why they're, they're, they're kind of like it's out of sight, out of mind. But it does affect uh, the cities because obviously Sydney was hit by smoke. So it's, it's like they can't avoid it, but it's like they've got their head in, their sand, in the sand a bit. Well, historically, it's been the farmers and the National Party, which is a coalition government with, with our conservative government, and they kind of hold the balance of power a little bit. And so it's always been about okay. the conservative farmers. But a lot of the farmers have been hit by the fires and the droughts and are having a lot of trouble and they're hugely subsidised by the government. So it's really tricky. 
But as you say, this year was different because this year affected one in four Australians. And, you know, a lot of people... I mean, when Sydney was in the smoke for months and months and, you know, people in the city start having premature babies with like deep, like respiratory issues and their mothers have black placentas, you know, it, we're at a whole other level, you know, it's really, really terrifying. And so, you know, I think a lot of people who are conservative in the country are now starting to slowly realise that something's changed. And a lot of them won't cop to climate change, but they, they will say like something's different. I don't know what it is, but something's different. And when you say, do you think it's climate change? And they're like, no, I'm not convinced of the science. And I guess that's one of the other things, you know, I mean, when I grew up, science was fact. And it's just heartbreaking now that the world is like, you know, science is like a debatable fact. And it's like, wow, we've really kind of devolved (laughs) as a species. And it's really to our detriment. And now it's endangering us. And I think that's, to me, that's really heartbreaking. Like, you know, I believe the scientists and when you've got, you know, thousands of scientists around the world saying this is happening at an alarming rate and it's faster than our projections um, and then half the planet are like, yeah, I don't believe the science. It's like where do you go to from there? And a lot of that's, and I, I think a lot of that's on the Murdoch press globally. Yeah. What a change in government do you think, uh, like is the Labor Party a little more on the, you know, we need to do something about climate change fast? Like are they... Yeah, are they, I guess, advocating for something better? I mean, they, they are, but, you know, they have not been successful. I wouldn't be surprised if Scott Morrison wins the next election. Um, Australia's deeply conservative. I mean, we only had a, a referendum for, it wasn't even a referendum, it was called something else, for um, marriage equality a couple of years ago, and I was convinced it wouldn't pass, and it did, and I was like, wow. But Australia's super conservative. Um, because it's a, it's interesting though, because I think Canada is so much like Australia and Toronto is exactly like Melbourne. I feel like I'm at home when I'm here, except you drive on the wrong side of the road. But, um, <laughs> but it's like we have trams, the buildings are the same, the city is the same when you drive from the airport. I feel like I'm in Melbourne when I'm here. I love Toronto. But, you know, you've got, and I know there are problems with the government here and everything, but at the same time you've got it globally, you know, you're one of the last bastions of liberalism here. Um, and Australia is very similar. You know, it's big, it's underpopulated, it's got a harsh um, climate. You know, Canadians and Australians are very similar. And, you know, I look at Canada and it's like, you know, you're so liberal comparatively and Australia's super conservative. And Australia's, you know, always been wealthy, pretty good lifestyle. You know, people live well. It's not overly political. You know, it's, it doesn't get caught up in, you know, it's not going to be you know, it's safe. It's not a war country, particularly, and it's and it's far away. You know, it's not that consequential. And it's like, why aren't we more liberal? But we're just a very—I don't know if it's—it's it's interesting. You know, the makeup of the Australian population, but it's—it's it's ultimately a very conservative country. Hmm. Well, I want to ask you about just the scale of the destruction uh, in Australia, and you know, when it comes to the fires, people obviously think of, I guess, the loss of homes, you know, memories, but. It takes a psychological toll too, doesn't it? I mean, could you just talk about some of the people you you interviewed and and what effect the fires had on them? Yeah, it's interesting because there's you know there's it's in the zeitgeist and there's lots of films about fire and I didn't a lot of them are and you know I think there's room for lots of films and discussion and I'm always positive about that, but there are lots of films that really focus on the victim and the victim and the stories and the stories of loss and loss and loss and I kind of wanted to build it out and and have that but then really focus on climate change. Um, and so we don't have a lot of that in the film, but, you know, 
it, and we also try and make every person who's in the film have a different reason to be there so that the film progresses. So, you know, there's a woman, Jan, in Malakuta who lost her home. Um, and she's very, she's a, she's a scientist actually, she's a marine biologist and she's very sort of, she's not the usual overly emotional kind of person. Australians are pretty laconic and very opposite to like an American, you know, they're not overly oral and emotional. And she just says in a really blunt way, she just says, you know, a huge chunk of my life is gone. I don't have any photos of my parents or my grandparents. And to me, that's devastating. And then Rachel, who's sort of intercut with her, also from Malakuta, is a photojournalist. She's really acclaimed. And she went out with her camera that day. And Malakuta was hit really hard, this um, this coastal town on the border of New South Wales and Victoria. And she was out taking all these photos. And we use a lot of her photos in the film. And, you know, it was, it was complete pitch black at like 11 o'clock in the morning. I mean, and there were embers falling. I mean, it must have been terrifying. And the footage is harrowing. And at one point she's like, she's got her kids with her and they end up in this hall and she, at one point she's like, you know, we could have we could have died. And she actually gets emotional and she's really tough. She's a journalist. Like that really surprised me. Um, I feel like there's a lot of PTSD. Um, I feel like people went straight from the fires, you know, in February to COVID in March and Australia had really long lockdowns. And I feel like, I feel like there's sort of a lot of deep trauma there and a lot of fear and a lot of anger. And then at the same time, there's like, you know, Daisy, Jeffrey, who's like our Greta Thunberg, this young, who at the time was 16, she's now 18 and doing her first year at university. And she was one of the, you know, the kids that organised all these student protests. And and she's, you know, she's she's in this situation where she's like, you know, terrified about the future, I'm not sure if she wants to have kids. Um, you know, and I ask her in the film, I say, you know, are you mad at us, like the older generation? And she goes, I'm not mad, however. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, she's pissed and she should be. So there's this whole range. And then there's like old people in the country who are fight, physically fighting the fire, this delightful old couple in Cabago. And I feel like there's quite a breadth of people in the film. And so you sort of just get this, you know, accumulated um, sense of pain and devastation um, and then when we really move into sort of climate change it gets I think quite scary yeah well I mean I don't want to take any th anything away from the toll it took on the people but I think for me personally like um, you know it should come as no surprise if you're an animal lover animals mm. suffered horribly um, could you just talk about the scale of the the fires on on the animal population yeah, it's really shocking. And this is actually when I realised I should make a global film about this because there was such an outpouring in like December and January globally from people sending money and the coverage, like it was on the front cover of the New York Times like 10 days in a row. And it was, I think a lot of it had to do with the animal stuff because, you know, we have exceptionally cute native animals in Australia and unique and they were just massacred. They say it was three billion were killed or injured, um, which is hard to wrap your head around. And you see it. I don't even live in Australia anymore, but you see it. When you go to certain places where there used to be like a lot of kangaroos and koalas and, you know, they're not there. Um, in Malakuta you really notice it. We were there about 10 to 12 months after the fires and, you know, the bird life in certain places there was no bird life and you know in the film there's some there's some really powerful shots of just devastated forest just dead and they're not growing back a year later and that's what a lot of people are talking about it you know australian the gums are really resilient and the, the eucalypts and they're used to burning and they you know within a few months they're covered in green and they usually grow and there's like endless like you can just see you know tens of kilometers of 
just burnt out forest and there's nothing. And at one point we were standing in a forest and our sound recorder started packing up his gear. And I'm like, dude, what are you doing? He was great, actually. <laughs> Didn't say that. Dude, what are you doing? And he said, I mean, there's nothing to record here. And I said, but there's got to be something. There's got to be like the shh. Like there's got to, and he goes, no, no, it, there's nothing because there's there's no leaves to rustle in the wind. There's no insects. There's no bird life. It was just silent in, a for, in this dead forest 10 months after the fires had gone through. And it was incredibly, that was a moment, I think, for me. Um, and just... You know, just the, I mean, you know, in some parts of Australia, like koalas are close to becoming, you know, being really endangered, um, you know, the path towards extinction. Um, and that that's pretty hardcore. But, you know, at the same time, the barrier reef is like, you know, bleached to the wazoo. And it's like, I just, it, as you know, as we say in the film, Australia's ground zero for climate change. You know, we're a vulnerable country and we are seeing, in the last decade, we're really seeing an increase fast in devastation increasing. And I just feel like no one's, no one's freaking out. Um, you know, and I, and I kind of am, and I don't even live there and I don't have kids, but you know, the barrier reef's not going to be around for that much longer. And I would have thought that might be the, the point where people got super crazy about this and they're sort of not, people are adapting and that's scary. People are adapting. And, and actually you mentioned uh, Daisy earlier and, and, you know, she. I think she she mentions in the film that her grandfather was a coal miner, um, and yet, you know, I guess the miners also have to kind of, you know, rely on this industry for for work and stuff. So I guess I wonder, you know, I guess what her perspective would be on on the people who I guess re- who have relied on these jobs for for decades, you know, and and that having to be phased out. Yeah, and they've done that really well in certain European countries, and we've known about this for a long time. Her grandfather was, um, I think he was a coal engineer, but he used to work in the mines a lot, and it's a really beautiful part of the film because, you know, two generations above her, her family came out here and were digging in the ground. But, you know, we've seen this over the years that, you know, you can phase out industries and implement new industries, and it's about innovative government thinking ahead, planning and retraining people. It's not, you know, it's not brain brain surgery. Like, (laughs) I, you know, the writing's been on the wall for a long time, and and also there's still mining that we have to do. You know, there's a lot of stuff in the film that I don't necessarily, you know, agree with, like when, you know, I mean, you know, or that's tricky for me, like when we say, you know, Scott Morrison did the right thing with COVID or Mike Cannon-Brooks, our, you know, Elon Musk <laughs> billionaire entrepreneur says, you know, mining is a good thing. And it's like, well, I mean, it's not great, but I'm very realistic. You know, I'm talking to you on my Mac. I've got my iPhone here. You know, what's that made out of? Stuff that comes out of the ground. We need mining and we should do it in a more responsible, environmentally friendly way but we can't phase out mining so let's be honest about it but you know coal should be becoming redundant very very quickly and there are other sources of energy that do not increase climate change and global warming and the fact that we're still fighting that after conclusive science and when we're racing towards sort of a precipice is is just beyond me and you know small towns you know you need to change industries and retrain people and that's something the government should do and we're not we're kind of getting close to the end of our, our conversation, but you know we've talked about uh, Canada a little bit in this in this talk, and um, we've obviously had our own challenges with fires this summer. Is there anything that I guess we could learn from Australia's experience with the Black Summer? Yeah, don't do what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I guess Canada's tricky though, probably for renewables with solar, right? Because you don't get quite as much sun as we do. Um, 
but I, you know, I think alternate sources of energy is the way to go. You know, we have to phase out, we have to phase out being reliant on fossil fuels and we just have to be, we just have to do better. And we need, we need, I mean, the thing is we need, we need governments to come together globally yesterday to agree on like a net zero plan that shouldn't be 2050 it should be 2030 because as I say we're not we're not beating our targets we're lagging um, and we're gonna we're seeing climate the climate the temperature rising and to me you know Tim uh, again our climate scientist says at the end of the film you know yes get your solar drive your electric car do everything you can personally within your community you know to fight this but we're at the point now where we need our governments to act on a bigger level and they're not and you know we've got the the cop, cops coming up in glasgow you know the un conference of the party the climate meeting and if you know all the com- countries don't commit to net zero this year they're saying it's kind of it like we're in big trouble if we do it now we've got 20 to 30 years of of increased climate but we're not going to go over the precipice but if we keep pushing it back we're going to go over the precipice so it's it's not a great story and we're in a lot of trouble and I guess what I don't understand is why our leaders don't think about the future they have children and that's their job to think about the future but somehow they only think about the now and that's I think you know that's what's really causing our our planet to be in so much distress yeah. Well, I, you know, I think one could, you know, watch this doc or maybe even read the UN's most recent climate report uh, and feel a lot of despair. And I mentioned, you mentioned, you know, that people are starting to adapt to this uh, new normal, I guess. But do you, I don't know, do you see signs of hope? Is there, is, I think at the, I mean, I don't want to spoil the ending for anyone watching, but I just feel like it doesn't end on a, on a bleak note. I mean, I think there are, maybe are, there are signs that things are, are hopefully, well, hopefully people are starting to get the message, but I wonder if, if you thought that. Yeah, I, I mean, I do. I'm a realist, not an optimist. Um, I think a lot of people in this industry uh, have to be optimistic because otherwise you would jump out of a building. <laughs> I think, and also, you know, you can't end a film like this, you know, completely down. You know, we've just had COVID and you've got to give people hope. I mean, I think if we act now, we'll be okay. And what's interesting is when governments are behind what the people want, they change. You know, why do you think Murdoch in Australia is softening their climate stance suddenly? Because they have to. It's not because they want to. It's because advertisers are pulling out and they're losing audiences. So it used to be where good government would lead the people. And I think on the planet globally, we're in a position where we have the majority of government that is not where the people want to be, even though they keep voting for them and we need to lead and if enough of us lead the government will follow and I think we're sort of getting to that point now um, and the fires are part of that reason for pushing the government so you know I think it's up to everyone as you know communities individuals to keep pushing and eventually the governments hopefully will catch up yeah well Eva, you've left us so much to think about thank you so much for joining me today thanks for having me And that's the podcast. Burning will be premiering globally on Amazon Prime Video later in 2021. While you're here, why not give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend about us? It helps new listeners find the show. Thanks to producer and editor Matthew O'Mara, producer Carla Lucetta, senior producer Katie O'Connor, production support coordinator Jonathan Hallowell, and executive producer Lori Few. We'll catch you at the next screening. Exactly. And that, you know what, I kissed my teeth, sorry.
<laughs> I do that all the time, man. That's the West Indian in me. <laughs> Amazing.